Father, we do acknowledge that your love endures forever and ever. And no matter how we came into this place today, whether we felt close to you, whether we felt far from you, what is true is that your love endures. We rejoice in that. We rejoice that you are the victor over every foe that we encounter, over every obstacle that will uh, confront us, you overcome. And Father, we rejoice in that. And Father, we pray that in this moment as we open up your word and we just seek your truth on our life, on our time, God, we pray that your word would speak and that we would experience your grace as amazing as it is in a fresh way. Because through your son, Jesus Christ, the penalty for our sin has been paid. Death has been conquered and hope and life rule. We rejoice in that this morning and we thank you that our worship has just surrounded your throne. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you guys. Take your seat. Great to uh, be with you again this morning. I, I was away on vacation this week in Florida, and as I'm driving back, I get between Chattanooga and, and Nashville, and we pull into a parking lot for our dog to do her business, and I get out of the car in shorts and a t-shirt, and I realize I'm not in the South anymore. It was slightly colder. I go grab my pullover, I go to the restroom, and somebody looks at me and says, I see that you're coming from warmer parts too, are you? And I said, yes, where are you from? They said, Minnesota. And he asked me, and I said, Michigan. And he says, everybody seems to be from Michigan who goes to Florida. It is probably true. I met about 11 people on this island where we were staying that were essentially simply from, <clears throat> excuse me, from Florida. So it is good to be back with you, I think. There were two things they said to me uh, when I came here. They said, look, the, the, winters are really, the winters are really bad, but there's two things that we can be fairly certain of. First, we never get snow before Thanksgiving. Well, that didn't reckon. On my first year, there was snow before Thanksgiving, and I got stuck twice in the snow before Thanksgiving. Then they said to me, we don't have snow after Easter. Yesterday, Dwight called me and just said, hey, as we're finishing this uh, song before you speak, really like you to come up and pray. And as soon as Dwight called me, it was an omen or something, I think there was a blizzard that, that confronted me on the road. And I'm like, good grief, Lord. I've had every kind of weather possible um, on this trip to get back home. It took us 26 hours uh, to get home because of black ice, and there were cars that don't realize you slow down in black ice, truckers that don't realize that, there were loads all over the highway, and in fact, it was so bad that somebody, Dwayne Dreyer, actually, their operations guy, said, hey, I'll be ready to do the message if you want. Thank you, Dwayne, but I will be here. Um, so it is uh, really good to be here with you and uh, to continue our series Stronger. My title of my message today is Amazing Grace, and I just want to spend a few moments 
focusing on the amazing grace that I believe needs to fuel our vision for the next decade. Now, over the next decade, we want to see two things happen. First, we want our church to become stronger at home and away. There are challenges for that to happen. The first challenge we have is to strengthen our local ministry here. It's to find a new home for our Spanish campus, La Roca. It's to launch, as Pastor Torrance said last week, a regional campus beginning services on Sundays at Easter of 2017. We want to strengthen our two international campuses that Pastor Mike and I were were able with Pastor Kelly to visit just a few weeks ago. God is doing a great work through our church, and our goal is over the next decade for us to become as a church stronger at home and away. That's a challenge. The second challenge we have is to make all of that possible, we need to raise an additional $7 million from May, ending in May 2019, in addition to the regular tithes and offerings. Now, whenever you start talking about things like this, it's like, oh no. You know, you start talking about the need to, to raise funds and people start to feel compelled. But what I want to do today is I want to just take you into the, the life of the early church in the book of Acts. And I want us to see how God worked to make them stronger at home and away and how that work was considered to be a work of grace. For God to do what he wants to do through us. It is gonna take an incredible work of the Holy Spirit, but when the Holy Spirit works, what people see is amazing grace. And today I wanna to ask a simple question. What does that amazing grace look like? What does that amazing grace look like? In a few moments, I'm gonna turn you to a passage in Acts 11, but before we do that, I want you to look at this verse. Because as I was thinking about our challenges for the next decade, realizing that we need God to do such an incredible work in us and through us, I recognized that what we need is a work of grace. And I read this verse as part of my quiet time, and I was just stuck there because I, I saw something, and I began to wrestle with something that I want to share with you this morning. Look at this verse. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Literally, that is, and much grace was upon them all. And I stumbled there, and I stopped, and I said, much grace was upon them all. How did they know that much grace was upon them all? What does grace look like? Have you ever thought about that? We talk really frequently, don't we, about God's grace. But when God's grace is on a church, what does it look like? What does grace look like? look like. With that in mind, I want you to turn to Acts at chapter 11. If you need a copy of the scriptures this morning and you haven't got one, all you need to do is to raise your hands in the air and our ushers will give you a, a copy. And then when you get there, I want you to turn to page 1103. And in a few moments, I'm going to begin to read. But what does grace look like? 
The other week, Pastor Mike and I were traveling from Jakarta to Yogyakarta, which is southeast, about an hour and a half a plane ride from Jakarta in Indonesia. And we were going there to visit a seminary that our church helped build. It was an incredible experience. There were about 90 students that were there, and Pastor Mike and I got to share with all of the students and just listen to the stories of first-generation Christians. Do you understand how significant that is? In the largest Islamic populated country in the world, we were there in a seminary with first generation Christians, the first people in their family to actually become Christians, sensing a call to ministry, and they were going to be not only first generation Christians, but first generation pastors reaching a country that has an, enorm an enormous amount of unreached people groups. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, this is what grace looks like. Grace looks like people surrendering everything. And when we talk about the future of Central, we believe that God has placed the country of Indonesia on our hearts. That's why we've got a campus. And just to be there and to recognize that for the past 25 years, this church has had a relationship with that country where we are building seminaries that, that help to train students. We not only do that, we've subsidized a number of students that were there. But the interesting thing is, Pastor Mike and I were going there. We'd never been there before. And so we were told um, that when we get there, somebody would actually meet us. Have you ever traveled somewhere where you've been told someone will meet you? Tomorrow I go to Utah with the Wesleyan denomination, meet with 11 other pastors, uh, pastors of large churches, and Joey told me somebody will meet you. That freaks me out. Can't you just give me a car and I'll get there myself because at least I'll get there. No, someone will meet you. Well, what does that someone look like? I mean, how do you, what do you look for when you haven't met someone before? Do an internet search on that and they'll tell you, there's five things that you should do when you meet someone you've never met or look for someone you've never met. The first thing is you imagine them. So there are Pastor Mike and I going from Jakarta to Joke Jakarta. We've never been there before. And what we need to do is just what? Close your eyes and just imagine them. Imagine what this seminary professor looked like. Well, that may work for your dream spouse, but let me tell you, seminary professors and presidents come in all shapes and sizes. That wasn't going to help us much. The second thing people will tell you to do is not just to uh, look, uh, close your eyes and imagine them. They tell you that you find the person, someone you've never met before, in the same way you find the edge of a circle. That may work for some of you, but that's a little bit too abstract for me. No help at all. Uh, the third thing they'll tell you to do when you're looking for someone that you've never met before is you can very simply wait for them to meet you. That's essentially what Pastor Mike and I did. We kind of walked out of the walked out of the you know out of the terminal, kind of looking around. You kind of slow your speed down a little bit, and you look, and then they found us. And you know why they found us? The fourth thing: Google, Google, Google. 
They googled our pictures. They knew what we looked like. We didn't know what they looked like. When you're trying to find someone you've never met before, you Google, 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 Google. The, the fifth thing you do, apparently, is you look for the signs. When I went to India to teach a, a group of pastors last year, same thing. I wasn't being met by someone I knew. They'd never met me. They Googled, 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 but they also had a sign with my name on it. You look for the signs. What's interesting is in the, in the book of Acts, as you start to read those early chapters of Acts, you get phrases like this, and God's grace was upon them all. Much grace was upon them all. And you ask this question, what on earth does grace look like? What does it look like? And the answer you get back is, well, you just look for the signs. I want to take you to this passage today in Acts 11, and I'm going to read this passage, and I turned here, I could have turned to a number of them, but I turned here for the very simple reason that this passage is the first time that any church or any Christian was actually called by that name, Christian. Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. There's a number of factors in here, but again, you get this idea that someone from Jerusalem came to this church, this body of believers, looked at it and said, this is what grace looks like. You want to know what my prayer is for Central over the next 10 years? It's that people would come in and say, this is what grace looks like. This is what grace looks like. These are followers of Jesus. And followers of Jesus are those people who are empowered by the Spirit of God. And when we are empowered by the Spirit of God, there are signs of grace all over the place. And what I want to do is I want to introduce you to three signs of grace that we believe needs to be at the heart of the stronger challenge for the next decade. Let's read this text, shall we? Acts chapter 11, beginning to read from verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Church, I love this. We've got Acts chapter 8, okay? The church slowly embracing the mission to go into all of the world through deacons, exemplary leaders, people like Stephen, going first to the Samaritans, the half-breeds. But who is it that takes the gospel to the Gentiles? Is it the apostles who were told in Acts 1-8, go into all of the world, make disciples of all people, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth? Is it them? No, it's not. It's actually the body of Jesus who experienced such extreme persecution that they fled their homes and rather going to those places that were safe, the Jews, some of them decided to go somewhere where the church had never been, Antioch. And it was these people who actually started to share the good news of Jesus with people who were considered outcasts and outsiders. 
I love that. You know what I believe with all of my heart? I believe with all of my heart that more often than not, the work that God anoints that is pioneering in a church comes from the pews, not from the pulpit. It comes from all of you when God grips you to such a point that you just know you need to go. Church, this is the way forward in America. I believe the way forward in America is to go back to the text. What was true then is true today. Programs don't change people anymore. What introduces people to the love of God is when the people of God are passionate about the good news of the gospel and just share Jesus wherever they go. That is significant there in the text as shown through the fact that it says, some of them, however, these were pioneers and it wasn't the apostles It was the ones who were persecuted. And the Lord's, look at this, the Lord's hand was on them. Have you ever wondered what the Lord's hand on someone looks like? This isn't a physical hand that comes out of the heavens. This is a sign that is visible, that is observable, that people can see that God is doing something. It's a sign. God's hand was on them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they rejoiced. Does it say that? No. (laughs) They weren't ready for this. What it says is they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Do you know why? Quality control. (laughs) Just like with the Samaritans, the church in Jerusalem wasn't ready to pioneer a new field. So God's Spirit falls on the Samaritans just like he does on the disciples in the upper room. They send Peter over there, and true enough, God's Spirit is on the Samaritans too in the same way. Now it's Barnabas, the man of encouragement, the man who set himself apart by selling everything that he had and giving it to the work of Christ through the church. That's who they send. They want to see what's going on. And when he arrived, look at this, and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. There was absolutely nothing that he could say other than, wow, praise God. He was a good man. Barnabas, why do we get this statement on Barnabas? This was new territory. We need to know that he's a good man because he's just made a decision to encourage people who were considered outsiders who now, through the Spirit of God, have been brought in. Not only is he a good man, he is full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Yeah, it took faith to pioneer new territory. As Torrent uh, told us last week, he was someone who was tough. He believed, he trusted, he obeyed, and he followed the work of God, and God was doing a new thing. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Stop there for a second. This is an amazing passage, isn't it? The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This term, Christians, is a compound word, Christos, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one, the one anointed with the Spirit of God to do the task that God had for his Messiah. But then we also have Janos at the end, which functions in the Greek in the same way as Jans functions in English, Christians, 
Christianos, basically followers of. And that's basically what a Christian is. A Christian is a follower of Jesus. In Mark chapter three, I believe it is, we're introduced to the Herodians. Janos again, the people who follow Herod, Herod and his family. So this idea of being a follower of Jesus is someone who follows in the, the example of the person of Jesus. Researchers will tell us it's likely that this term Christians was actually introduced by the political establishment there to differentiate the followers of Jesus with their Jewish heritage from the Jews who didn't follow Jesus. Initially, it was considered to be a derogatory term, but over time it became a, a demarcation between the, the strict Jews and those Jewish believers who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So the idea here again is that a follower of Jesus is someone who visibly, whose life visibly follows after the teachings of Jesus. Again, the question is, what does this look like? That's the first thing that strikes me. The second thing that strikes me in this passage is this. They saw what the grace of God had done. When Barnabas went there, he saw what the grace of God had done. Here's the question. What does the grace of God look like? Again, we've seen it in Acts 4.33. We've seen it in Acts 11. I could keep going at a number of points. But the question is, when God's grace is on a church, what does it look like? What does grace do? I believe that we've made a, a mistake in our theology of grace, in our understanding of grace in the church. All too often, we talk about grace and we restrict it to this idea of salvation, and salvation only. We know that we are saved by grace, God's grace, through faith. And that's it. We become a child of God by God's grace, through having faith in the Lord Jesus. So we're able to become children of God through God's grace, and, and really that's kind of where we stop, but that's not where the New Testament stops. Paul says, grace was given to me to be an apostle. It was God's grace that enabled Paul, someone who once persecuted the church, to be brought in and brought close. But Paul also says, this grace was given to me to do the work of an apostle. In other words, this is the principle. Grace is not simply a passive bestowal of divine favor. It is actually an active empowering to do God's will. Grace enables us to become the children of God, and it empowers us to live as the children of God that we have become. This is grace. Grace is synonymous with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit works in a believer's heart, the expression is grace. Grace doesn't just enable us to be saved, this passive bestowal of divine favor. No, grace is an active work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so when Barnabas went to Antioch, he looked and he saw the incredible things that were happening and he said, this is what grace looks like. So what does grace look like? What kind of commitments do we need to demonstrate over the next decade in order to be that people that exemplify grace? What are the things that we need to do to, to show and to reveal the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts? I think there are three things principally. Firstly, there needs to be a commitment to proclamation. 
we proclaim. What's very interesting when you read the early chapters of Acts is how grace is tied to the proclamation of the gospel. The book of Acts is essentially the story of evangelism in the early church in those first few decades. And what we see is the church was unified behind the goal of sharing Christ with the world. What does grace look like? When God's grace is on the church, there is a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me assure you, for as long as I am the lead pastor of this church, that will always be our commitment because that is the primary mark of grace. We understand that what happened on the cross was so decisive in world history that no matter what people say, we cannot water down the message of the cross. What will Central be like over the next 10 years? We will make sure that we will amplify the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just here, not just through our La Roca campus, not just through the campus that Pastor Torrin will lead, not just through our international campuses, but prayer, God willing, through all of you. But let's be honest, this is a tough thing to do, isn't it? That's why I love Acts chapter 11, that the ones that were pioneering the proclamation of the gospel weren't the ordained professionals. It seems as though these ordained professionals, these apostles, were kind of dragging their feet on taking the good news of Jesus into the world. So you know what happens when the leaders drag their feet? God raises up the people in the seats, and they go do it. What I love is that it's the ordinary person in the pew that actually leads the charge, that proclaims new territory. Do you know that in Holland we have about 47% of people who have no connection with the church at all? 47%. Now, the, the term, you know all of this because you told me this, the term for Holland in the church world is church city. 171 churches in this area, in this small town. Sometimes it's really hard for us to get our head around the fact that 47% have no connection with the church when it seems as though Holland is so churched. But the reality is, there are Lots of people who are not connected with the church. Do you also know that 27% of families in the Holland area are actually single parent families? Do you know that? Single parent families where money is tight. Some of you look at our stronger goals and you look at what we want to try and do in the campus and you see the kind of children's playland and you think, how on earth is that going to help us actually bring people to Jesus? Let me tell you a story, a true story that actually happened just a few weeks ago when we did the winter party at church. There's Pastor Travis who's standing up on his little soapbox trying to share the gospel message when kids are having a, you know, having a, a whale of a time around everywhere, the noise is going everywhere, and there's Pastor Travis sharing the gospel. That day, 11 people came to faith in the Lord Jesus through the winter party. To do something like that took hundreds of volunteers. 
And that much work at that point in time is often too much to do each and every week. What is significant with this story is, this was on the Saturday, on the Sunday, Becca Lynn, one of our, our staff members, was sharing the, uh, the gospel message in the children's, the elementary school in our uh, central kids. And as she finished sharing, and a second grade girl, an eight-year-old girl, came to Becca and said, Be- uh, Becca, can I ask you a question? Becca says, of course. She said, who is this Jesus that you are talking about? She came to Central Kids that day off the back of our winter party. And the next day, the parents brought her back to church. And there, in Central Kids, you've got a second grade girl coming to Beckelin. This is Church City, don't forget. Okay, saying, excuse me, who is this Jesus that you're talking about. I've stood up here multiple times saying there are people in Holland who've never heard the name of Jesus, and I'm sure some of you think, really? Yeah, really. And the younger you get, the more likely it is for you never to have heard about Jesus. And do you know the statistics of people who live as Christ followers as adults who become Christians as children? Do you know the stat? It's remarkable. It is so high. If we want to change this nation, we have to begin at a younger age, but we can't do things like this each and every week because it takes too much time. So what do we need to do? We need to do the special day every day. That's why the Kids Playland is coming in here. Every single day, we believe that there will be hundreds and hundreds of children that have no connection with a church There will be families, many of them low-income families, some of them single-parent families. When the winters are long, and we know that they're long, right? And the money is tight. We want an exceptional area in which these people can come in order for us to share Jesus with them. We've got plans for that. You can see it on our website. But this is where the story is really cool. This eight-year-old girl looks at Becker and says, "Who, who is this Jesus you're talking about? And then she says this, get this. Is this the same Jesus that a few of my friends talk to me about at school? Oh, did you get that? Second grade children are sharing about Jesus in school. So that when we create something that actually brings these children in that are already prepped to hear the gospel, not through the professional, but through the people in the pew. That is the way it worked in Acts. And if we want to transform America, that's the way it needs to work today. Not relying on the professional communicators, but relying on the Spirit of God working in our hearts. And when we see that, church, you know what I said when I saw that? That is what grace looks like. That is what grace looks like. When People in the pew are just so thankful for what God has done in their heart that they're committed to share about Jesus wherever they go. Grace looks like the commitment to proclaim. We will continue to do that, but we want to fashion an environment where it's easy for us to do this kind of winter party ministry day in, day out, week in and week out. And that is why we must retool this facility to make that kind of ministry possible. But secondly, 
It's not just about proclamation. When you have a look at what grace looks like in the New Testament church, you see that there was a commitment to overcoming. What I want to see for Central over the next decade is that we are a church of overcomers. Let me explain what I mean by this. The Wesleyan denomination has a, has a term that is, we consider to be important. We believe in optimistic grace. Optimistic grace. We are more optimistic about the power of grace than we are pessimistic about the power of sin. We believe that there is too much talk on what sin can do and not enough talk about what God does when the Holy Spirit works in a person's heart. That is one of the distinctives of the Wesleyan church. And if you're a guest of ours and you think Wesleyan, I can't even say it properly, don't worry. I think that John Wesley was a Brit. I say it properly, nobody else does, so just join the club. Um, If you want to know one of our distinctives, it's actually optimistic grace. We're really positive about grace. We're really positive about the fact that it doesn't matter what hurt you struggle with, what habit you can't kick, what hang-up seems to pull you back, God's grace can transform you. Through God's grace, you can overcome and you will overcome. That's the message. And look at this, Romans 5, where sin increased, look at this, grace increased all the more. I wonder whether you know someone, even a prodigal, and it seems to be that grace, uh, that sin rather, is increasing and increasing and increasing. Remember this verse, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Just as sin reigned in death, so also great a grace might reign through the righteous, righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What do we want for Central over the next decade? We want not only for people to be introduced to the gospel, to become followers of Jesus. We want to see another sign of grace, and that is people overcoming those hurts, those habits, and those hang-ups. They're actually holding them back, and that is why this fall we're planning to introduce a Celebrate Recovery ministry, a ministry specifically designed to help people overcome. Why do we do that? Because we're optimistic about grace. Yes, we will speak the truth about sin, but I pray we will be bolder about speaking the truth about grace. And the power of God's grace. There's a story told about a conversation in heaven about the greatest trophy of grace. This story goes that there was a man who stepped forward who had committed every kind of sin imaginable. And as he was speaking and sharing his story the angels and the congregation were, were in awe about how God's grace had saved him on his deathbed. And there in, in that moment, people were thinking, maybe this is the greatest sign of grace, the greatest trophy of grace. And then with that, uh, another person stepped forward and said, can I share my story? And the story goes that this person shared their story about how they'd met Jesus as a child and how God's grace had protected them throughout their life from all of the sins and the perils of the world. And in that moment, Jesus is heard to speak and say, that is the trophy of grace. That is the mark of grace. Church, what we want is to be a church that overcomes. 
But we want to do that from training people from when they're young to live in such a way that they reflect the holiness and the righteousness of Christ so that they never have the hurts and the habits and the hang-ups to overcome that many of us have had to happen. See, the New Testament teaching is this. Every sin that we commit is not a sin of submission to a power that is stronger than us, but a submission to a power that is weaker than the Christ in us. And how insulting of us to do that. What do we want for the next decade? We want to be a stronger church. I didn't say a bigger church. I said a stronger church. We want, not a bigger church, we want stronger Christians. We want to be the type of church where it is commonplace for us to hear stories of God's grace protecting people from going into and tackling and having to overcome the kind of hurts, habits, and hang-ups that many of us have had to do. But at the same time, we want to be the type of church that is the church where people who need the hope and life that Jesus offers to find the hope and life that Jesus gives. That's what we want. That's what grace looks like. We overcome. Lastly here, I'm running out of time. We sacrifice. Grace looks like sacrifice. When I hear this, when I say this phrase, you know, we need to raise an additional $7 million over three years, beginning from May, lasting through until May 2019, I know what happens in this moment. People go, they're going to ask me to give. But I want to end by pointing out that one of the marks of grace in the New Testament church was a willingness to sacrifice. Look at this text and notice the connection of grace to giving. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. What does grace look like? This is what grace looks like. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. That's what grace looks like. See, all too often when we talk about sacrificing and stewardship and giving, what we feel on the inside is compulsion. That we simply have to do this. We feel it often when it comes to sharing our faith. Oh, I need to do this. We certainly feel it when it comes to giving. But the kind of grace that is the mark of the New Testament church is a type of grace that gives freely, willingly, and joyfully. The fact is that this type of grace has typified this church for decades. That's why we sit in a facility like this. And my encouragement to us all is, through this next decade, Let's make sure that the grace of giving, the typified central in years of past, typifies us in the decades ahead. So as we wrap up here, I want you to note this principle. Grace, when it comes to giving, is seen not through equal giving, 
but through equal sacrifice. Listen to this. God is not concerned with the numbers as much as he is concerned with the heart. What is incredible about the Macedonian church is not that there was equal giving, it's that there was equal sacrifice. They begged for the opportunity to give. Not all of them give the same amount, but each of them, the rest of that text tells us, gave what God laid on their heart to give. Let me encourage you in this season. Allow God's grace to work in your heart in this way. Feel under no compulsion. But as we journey through this season together, just go before God and say, God, what does your grace look like in my life? Does it look like a passionate commitment to share your truth, the truth about Jesus to the people I'm around? Does it look like me overcoming those hurts, those habits, and those hang-ups that hold me back? Does it look like a radical generosity that just flows from my life? And if through this morning, God's Spirit has been working on your heart in one of these areas, then what I would encourage you to do in just this moment is say, Holy Spirit, I hear you speak. And in this area, pick whatever area it is. Say, please, Work on my heart. Bow your heads with me. Let's give God room to do that. What does grace look like in your life? Much grace, if you're a follower of Jesus, is on you. What does that look like? Is there an area in these three areas that you feel more grace is needed? If so, just tell God that. Father, we thank you this morning for grace upon grace. We thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are called according to your purpose. But Father, we recognize that when we talk about looking and acting like Jesus in the world, all of us recognize we've got a long way to go. And so, Father, where your Holy Spirit has just shone his light into our heart in one of these areas this morning, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would seal that decision, that commitment, until the day of redemption, until Jesus comes back. But in the intervening time, may we grow in this area. For those of us who have heard this passionate commitment that the early church and even our second grade children have to sharing about Jesus, just give us a childlike faith to do the same thing. Help us grow in grace. For those of us, Father, who are here this morning and we are just battling hurts, habits, and hang-ups, help us to grow in grace so that we would be victorious and we would overcome Help us grow in grace. And Father, for those of us who struggle in the area of giving, may we grow in grace. And Father, in this place, in this church, 
may we reflect the grace that you lavished upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in all we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here this morning. If there's something that I've said that has triggered something you need prayer for, as always at the end of the service, you can just come to the front. There will be people with orange name tags on that will be willing and just there to pray for you. If you need more privacy, you can go out of the room here off to the right, and there is a prayer room that we have just to the right. Again, thank you for being here. It's an incredibly exciting season for us, and I'm told that after today, we shouldn't get any more snow, right? If that's not any, something to look forward to, I don't know where to stand with us. Let's pray a prayer of blessing, and I pray you have a great week. Father, we thank you for your grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been lavished upon us. And so the people and family of Central go in peace, go in grace, and may the God of grace empower you wherever you go and whatever you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. See you all next week.